Thank you for tuning in to the Identity in Me podcast. My guest for this episode is a very dear colleague who's an instructor of English at Phillips Exeter Academy, among many other responsibilities. And because of her awesome and varied presence in the school community, she's being celebrated for Women's History Month. This is part one of a wide-ranging interview with her. All right, I'm here with Dr. Courtney I Care Marshall. This is the first time she's hearing this nickname that I've decided to bestow on her. It's a nickname she has earned because of her spirit. It's the first word that comes to mind when I think about Dr. Marshall, and I'm sure that's the case for many others who have had the good fortune to work with her, whether that's in the classroom, dorm, community center, or prison. Her kindness has been felt in many settings, and you're about to learn a lot about the extent to which Dr. Marshall expresses this care. That's if she doesn't decide to be modest about all the work that she does. I'm pleased to feature you on the podcast this evening, Dr. Marshall. How are you? I'm doing all right. Thank you so much for having me. How do you feel about that nickname that I just dropped on you? Well, it's a Beyonce song, so that uh, makes me happy. Um, so I'll, I'm, I'm cool with that. I didn't even realize that was a Beyonce song. The title is I Care? Yes. Okay. Can you sample a little bit of that? Can you sing a little bit of it? No. <laughs> do you sing? Well, the, the no, I I don't sing. Um, but it it's the song. It goes, um, I care. I know you don't care too much, but I still care. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm, yeah. So I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm very much stuck in the mid '90s, early 2000s with my music. Actually, a lot of '70s and '80s too. I haven't caught up. So okay. after this interview, I'm gonna go and listen to that song and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I can't incorporate it. Sounds good. All right. So um, I've had the pleasure of working with you now for four years, and we've worked closely on a few things, one of them being the OMA Book Club. And more recently, we've been working together on the first generation uh, programming group together, uh, where we are thinking about ways in which we can enhance the first generation experience for students on this campus. Mm -hmm. And uh, you had this wonderful idea that I'm working on right now, which is to uh, make adults in the community more visible who identify as first generation. And I'm assuming that you are first generation as well. Um, yes, I I am in a way, but I can okay. talk about that later. All right. Well, um, that allows us to kind of move into um, the matter of how you identify. So I will ask you that question, Dr. Marshall. How do you identify? That's a big question, but it's intentionally broad. So I think there are identities I hold that are really important. I think being a Black woman is incredibly important to my identity. Um, I identify as a fat person in the world. There are um, some identities that I don't, know that they are that they we have the words for them yet but they are important to me their life experiences that are important to me um so i have a, a parent who um, struggled with substance abuse so that's a really important identity um i grew up very poor um so being on welfare so being you know welfare kid that you know ghetto kid whatever you want to say like that's really important to me as, as a component of my identity. Um, right now, you know, we always talk about 
sort of um, temporarily <laughs> um, able. Um, so I do identify as someone who has a few um, kind of chronic conditions that, you know, go in and out of remission based on, you know, <laughs> the day of the week, I guess. Um, so, yeah, so all those things are kind of how I identify, identify myself. You went broad on me. You gave me a few layers there. We can spend some time, a lot of time on each of those areas. Sure. Um, I'm an open book. Everything I have access to is meant to be shared. Everything. Now, you mentioned um, this identity as a fat person. Can you say more about that, please? Yes. So it's it's a very interesting um, identity because it holds that life does not begin for fat people once they lose weight, right? So the, the life of a fat person is not someone who's constantly trying to lose weight and take on the identity of thin. That fat people have their own um, traditions, have their own history, have their own culture, have their own vocabulary. Um, and so kind of that's what I mean when I talk about it as an identity. Um, there's certainly people who have written about it as a political identity. So for example, what fat means today versus what fat meant a hundred years ago. Um, but for me, it's really about forming community with others whose bodies are made to feel like they don't fit. Kind of literally, they don't fit in chairs, they don't fit in clothes, um, but they also don't fit in movies they don't fit at the doctor's office so it's, it's all these um all these parts of this identity um come together for me um i do identify if to, to use the lingo of, of fat um there are small fats there are mid fats there are infinite fats um and so those are people who you know the way we think about it is kind of can you find clothes in a store right so when my first year, when I came to um, Exeter, I wrote a meditation and I delivered it in the church. And it was about going from the size of someone who could only shop in Lane Bryant, which if you don't know, Lane Bryant goes up to size 28. And I lost so much weight that I could no longer shop there. And so I went to the mall and I forget what store I went to it was because I was trying to find something for a tap dance recital. And the difference was that I could fit those clothes in the second store because the Lane Bryant clothes were too big. But being in the plus size section of like a Macy's, is a totally different experience than being at a Lane Bryant where all the people can help you, all the, the other shoppers, you're all talking with each other. Whereas at this store, there was like one rack or two racks, like way in the back of the store. Yeah. And so it was, just, it was just a completely different experience. Um, so that's what I mean. Do you remember when in your life you decided to embrace that aspect of your identity? It's really interesting because over the course of, Oh, maybe two, two, two and a half years. I have to, I have to go back and get the actual dates. I lost about 250 pounds. And what was interesting to me was that going from a bigger size to a smaller size, I thought in my mind that once I got smaller, my life would be better, be different. Yeah. And what I noticed was that 
I had, you know, confidence and, you know, I was happy, you know, as much as any, you know, woman can be happy in this culture. But the point is, there were people who were much smaller than me. And they would say things about themselves, about their bodily dissatisfaction. And so I started to say like, well, wait a minute. If the idea is that I lose weight, so I get to be their size, they're going to, I'm going to have all this confidence and everybody's going to be great. But I found out like they were still getting cheated on. They were still having bad days. So I was like, wait, maybe being thin, right. is not the prize. Right. Um, And so that's what really got me thinking about how I was tying weight and size um, and worthiness all together. Mm. Um, Part, the other part of that was I used to be a women's studies professor and I started just looking at the gym space and I continue to do this, looking at the gym space and how it fosters bodily dissatisfaction um, for, for people, for people of all sizes. But I think particularly for people who are fat or who identify as fat, um, there's a special type of, of feelings that come up. Um, when you're in that in that space. So so that's how I came to thinking about fat, not as an identity that I'm kind of like passing through <laughs> to get to thin, but it, it's actually its own thing. And I could sit in it and still have a wonderful, great life, right? And be in that identity without saying, let me put it to the side and get on to the fun stuff. There's so much you said there that I could follow up on. <laughs> um, you noted 250 pounds. How long does it take for one to lose 250 pounds? Why did you make that decision? There's so much going on there. Can you tell the story around that? Well, this is really something because I don't tell the story mm. about it. And, and, and it's I, okay if you don't want to. And But I'll, I'll, say, I'll say why. Um, because what I found was that as I lost weight, people's people changed the way they treated me. And I got so there's a there's a idea in fat in fat community about the good fatty and the bad fatty. So the good fat person is the person who's on the treadmill, eating the salad, like doing their best, you know, pushing away from the table. And the bad fatty is the one who's eating the cupcakes and sitting on the couch, right? So when we say things like, you know, at least you're lapping everybody on the couch. We say we make those kind of statements. And I, I thought very, and again, this was a process, um, but it, it happened before I became an exercise instructor because I, I really wanted to get this right in my head before um, I did that. I said, I never wanted my story to make another fat person look like a bad fatty. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to occupy the good fatty stereotype. Sure. Yeah. That If that makes sense. So, so I, I rarely talk about like, if, if you talk to people here on this campus, aside from that um, meditation that I wrote my, like, again, I think it was my first year here. Um, I never talk about my weight loss. Like never. And see, that goes back to that I care uh, nickname or the middle name weird. that's being weird. bestowed upon you. No, that's dope. And, and, and you're a dope person. And that is why you're being featured this month. And 
I'm thinking about the spirit of caring that you carry with you and the work that you currently do on campus. Um, your full-time role is English instructor. You're also associate dean of academic advising, which is a new role for you. You are also dorm head of Kirtland. And how long have you been dorm head of Kirtland? I have been, oh, this is my fourth year as dorm head here. I've okay. been the dorm head since it um, started. And Kirtland is an all-gender dorm on campus, and it was the first one, correct? One of two. So um, Williams House is the other one, and they both came online at the same time. Okay. And so I see you as someone who has done a lot of work related to identity affirmation. Um, you were involved with the literacy program at a prison and the Zumba uh, class that you teach. I'm sure there's a lot more uh, that you do. Uh, where did the desire to do this work come from? And were there people who looked out for you in this way? Hmm. So where did the desire to kind of work in the area of identity affirmation? Yeah. Is that what you mean? Wow. I feel like everything all comes together in, in weird ways. Um, I often say that, um, you know, kind of Black women and girls are just the, the centers of my world. And and Black feminism totally just lights my path. And, you know, I'm, I'm always surrounded by pictures and books and words, and they just show me, show me where to go. Um, so I think for, for me, um, a lot of this work for what you, what you call it, I care work, um, really comes out of my desire to be the adult that I think I had in my life when I was younger in some ways, but also in ways that I didn't have. Um, so I think I was really blessed to have a, just a wonderful grandmother who was a teacher. So when I talk about how much I love teaching and what it means to me, it's very much me thinking about my grandmother and the teachers that I, that I had. Um, but I, I also, you know, like I said, I grew up in a home that was, uh, what's a nice, I don't know what's a nice, nice way to say it. I think they, they would call it verbally abusive at this, at this point in this year. But I didn't grow up in a house or with adults that really listened to children, um, didn't listen to people. Like if you weren't kicking in on bills, you'd had nothing to say. Right. And whoever paid, paid the bills where they were the boss and they were in charge. And I always remember, even when I was young, feeling like, well, that doesn't seem fair. Like, why should people have to, you know, pay in order to be a part of the family or part of the community? Everybody should have a say so in everything. Um, and so I think that's what kind of connects my work. So I think about like Toni Morrison who said she doesn't do many things. She does one thing in many different spaces. And so I yes, take that absolutely. idea yeah, and yeah. I take it into different spaces. So when I, when I work with um, incarcerated fathers, which is what I'm doing um, these days, it's about how can they have a deeper connection with their children? How can they use books to understand something about their children and talk to them? And when I'm working with 
the students here in Kirtland House, it's, you know, how can I, in, in, in my, you know, whatever sphere of influence I have, how can I create a living space where they feel like they can breathe and they can be themselves and they can leave dishes in the sink and nobody's going to yell at them yeah. and no, nobody's going to be mean to them because they made a mistake. Right. So, so I think that's what guides me in this work. You know, that's always interesting to me. So I can relate to a lot of what you said about growing up in a household and not having a say, and, you know, you don't pay any bills. I always talk about how I'd watch sitcoms and see kids talking it out with their parents. And I'm like, yo, that's so interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Like your, your thoughts and opinions matter. And I'm very proud of uh, the background that I come from. I love my parents. I think the tough love did some good for me. Um, I also see opportunities where my upbringing could have been better. It's interesting how you could have taken your own experience and and allowed that to manifest in the way that it has. And so I'm thinking about the work you've done with um, fathers in the literacy program. Can you say a little bit more about that? Um, Has that experience been transformative for you in any way? And um, how would you say the fathers have been impacted by this program? Wow. So it's a program run by the New Hampshire Humanities Council. It's called Connections, and it uses um, children's um, literature to um, foster literacy. So there are English language learners who do Connections programs. Um, There are new Americans who do Connections programs. And so there's a division of Connections that is based in prisons. And so I started 10 years ago when I first got to New Hampshire, Um, probably the first summer after I got to New Hampshire, um, started going up to the men's prison in Berlin. I've been to the women's prison. I've been to the women's transitional housing. And right now I'm working with a group of men in the Concord men's prison. Um, When I first started, I I wasn't scared because I was familiar with incarcerated people. I had, you know, previously incarcerated people in my family. I had, you know, taught classes on prison literature, taking students to LA County Jail. So, you know, that was, I felt physically safe. Um, But it was a a big adjustment having to talk to people about books, but people who who didn't go outside, right? So really when I'm with them for that time, it's just me and them and they are focused on me. And every move that I make, if I change my sneakers, like they notice like every single thing. And so that was, um, that was a big change for me. Over the time, the 10 years that I've been doing it, you know, I started out writing a dissertation about black women in crime and I was gonna write that book. And I, I always tell people that I decided I wanted to read and write alongside incarcerated people instead of writing about them. Mm-hmm. And so that has been the biggest shift for me. To, to really be engaged with them and their books, not the way I see the books, but to really think about how are they gonna see the book? So when we read the Odyssey and I'm like, okay, fine, it's an epic, it's a, you know, it's all this mythology, but when I'm with them and, and the groups change, so the men change, 
Um, and to hear them talk about their love of mythology when they were younger, that's really cool. Or talking about Odysseus and what it's like to have a father who goes away for a long time. Like that to me is, is really the transformative part. It just reminds me how much I love books and I just love talking to people about books. And I have seen men um, change. I've seen men get excited about coming to talk about books. Over time, they said they wanted more difficult books. Um, and so I've given them hard books as they, especially when they found out I worked at a, a college, then they were like, well, we want to be challenged too. So and I'm you, really excited about what we do together. And have you challenged them more? I have. Um, right now we are reading, um, learning about Ona Judge. I'm, I'm pointing. So we're reading Never Caught, the story of Ona Judge. So we, we spent last, this last session talking about slavery um, and kind of what do you do when you tell a child about, you know, enslaved people not being able to read and write or not being able to get married. And they say, well, why? Right. So what do you say to that kid when they say when they ask you why? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So we've been talking about that. Um, it also gave me a chance to ask them, what did they learn about slavery? You know, what new things that they learned from our book? Um, and we're reading that book. You know, that, that's a chapter book. So we're reading chapters of that. And we read that alongside a picture book um, called How My Parents Learned to Eat about an American sail sailor and a Japanese woman um, who have to learn how to use chopsticks, how to use the knife and fork. And the story is told by their daughter who's talking about how her parents learn to eat. So in that case, we talked about, have you ever gone to somebody's house and they, they ate dinner a totally different way yeah, from you? Yeah. Also, do you know how to use chopsticks? So it's a really cool way to think about like the, the subject of the book, but also like bigger um, topics. And so that's challenging for them because also I don't know what any of those men are in prison for. Sure. I never want to know. I never ask them. And how many hours a week do you devote or per month do you devote to this? It's two hours. Um, each session is two hours long. Um, and so it's, you know, and we do four sessions. And then um, this this time around, it's an hour and a half because, you know, I have to go by what the prison schedule is. Um, but yeah, that's how it, how it goes. So I get a group of guys for four weeks. In addition to being this really caring individual, and so this care has taken you into prisons. Uh, I'm also thinking about this other aspect of you that I've discovered in meetings, and that's you're very thoughtful and you think outside the box. And I so enjoy having you in meetings. And I'm sorry, no pressure, but like literally every time we're in a meeting together, I'm like, what am I going to pick up from Courtney today? She's going to drop something. <laughs> and there's always a takeaway for me. You stand out as one of the more innovative, thoughtful, and collaborative individuals I've ever encountered. And I get the sense that you're always reaching back into some layer of who you are to problem solve. And I'm thinking about your identity. And you already talked about how your upbringing kind of led to this caring uh, component uh, that I experience here at work. So the, the direct question to you is, do you have a sense of where this thoughtfulness and willingness to collaborate comes from? You know, I'm as I sit here and I, you know, I'm thinking, and again, I'd have to get the years right. But 
right before I left, well, I guess maybe a year or so before I came to Exeter, um, I decided that I was going to be an exercise instructor and I wanted to work for free and I wanted to, you know, give exercise classes to folks who didn't have access. And part of what I did there is I got out of debt. So I've, I've, you know, no credit card debt, nothing like that. And I read this website um, by this guy, Dean Spade, called Enough. And it was about how to kind of redistribute wealth, right? And that's that's another identity that's really important to me. I don't know if I'm a philanthropist because I think that ha- that has a certain picture in my mind. But when I said, like, I give away a lot of money. Like, I just, I just here, you need, get it, take it. As I mentioned in the opening, this is merely part one of this conversation. Be sure to tune in to learn about Dr. Marshall's philanthropy and so much more.